What's up, everybody? It's Sathya Sam here, and welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope that the day is off to a great start for you, or maybe the day's wrapping up, and I hope it's been a good one. We are about to share with you a, a really cool kind of a pilot project that I have going on with Naked Gospel Podcast and Husband Material Podcast, uh, which is run by my friend Drew Boa. And Naked Gospel is owned by or run by uh, my friend Shane. And together, uh, we, we just combined to have an interview with the three of us. And basically, uh, to set the stage a little bit, I interviewed on Proven Men, uh, sorry, not Proven Men, Naked Truth Podcast, which is run by Proven Men Ministries. Lots of different names flying around here. Um, I interviewed on Shane's podcast. Let me use their names. That's easier. I interviewed on Shane's podcast um, a couple months ago to launch The Last Relapse. Uh, we really hit it off. And, you know, sometimes you interview and it's just business as usual. And I'm, I'm really grateful for those. I'm, I'm so grateful when people come prepared and when the interviews go smoothly and when you're like, hey, this was awesome. Thanks so much for promoting my stuff. And there's other times where you interview and you're like, oh, man, this is a friend. This is not just an interview. Uh, we're not just doing business together here. This is like a legitimate friendship. And I really felt that with Shane. And so we stayed in touch and, uh, you know, he, he knew that I had a, a good friendship with Drew and they've had Drew on the podcast before as well. And I, I don't know actually if Shane's been on uh, either podcast, like he hasn't been on ours yet and I'm not sure if he's been on Husband Material, but anyways, he reached out with the idea to kind of bring us together and for the three of us to sit down and start speaking about sexuality a bit more openly and really with the goal of engaging uh, I would say especially the millennial audience, but but granted, you know, the nature of what we're discussing is applicable across the board. And so this was our first time doing it. We're all still like figuring out each other a bit. Uh, there's still some chemistry things to be worked on, but I know you're going to really enjoy this interview. This is just three dudes figuring out life, being honest. And uh, we, I mean, I shared some stuff on there that I've never shared before things that I, I was kind of surprised were coming out of me, but it was just a cool environment. It's just a little bit different, you know, in the one-on-one interview. I don't really know why exactly. This is still kind of new, but it was really fun, uh, really in-depth. And so this is a mixture of kind of the living room vibe of listening to three dudes talk about life. And, you know, there's plenty to glean from that and plenty to relate to. But then there's also some some nuggets in there and we, we talk a little bit about the things that we're seeing work and the things that are impacting people at a really deep fundamental level. So it's got a little bit of everything. It's a different dynamic. I think you're really going to enjoy it and I'm, I'm really excited to share it with you. And I think you can probably expect an episode like this from the three of us once every couple of months. So that's sort of the, the target we have in mind. I'll obviously keep you posted as they, they come out in the future. But without further ado, guys, here's my interview with Drew Boa of Husband Material and Shane O'Neill of Naked Gospel Podcast. So here's the million-dollar question. How are men like us who work hard, have good motives, and a God-given purpose supposed to fulfill the calling on our lives and the dreams in our hearts, all while establishing sexual integrity, thriving relationships, and a meaningful connection with God? That is the question. And this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Sathya Sam. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. My name is Drew Boa and I am 30 years old. I live in Santa Barbara, California for now. And I spend most of my days helping men outgrow pornography. That is what I've experienced and is most meaningful kinds of things that I get to do with my life. Um, helping men change their brains, heal their hearts and save their relationships. Hmm. And uh, it's, it's hard work. It's intense. Um, and also it's good work and it's beautiful. It's meaningful. Hmm. Thanks, Drew. Sathya? Yeah, uh, so my name is Sathya Sam. I am the founder of an organization called Deep Clean. And uh, we also help guys with porn addiction. That's sort of our focus. I live in St. Catharines, Ontario, about 20 minutes from Niagara Falls, about an hour from Toronto. And I'm a, a fourth generation pastor, technically, if you want to call me a pastor. And so a strong lineage of sort of faith backgrounds. And So love being here with you guys. I do want to just jump right into the deep end if you guys are cool with it and just ask why why do you guys do what you do you're both pretty competent men and i'm sure you see other needs around you but you've really dedicated yourselves to the 
yeah, just kind of the field of sexual integrity and this particular issue. So, uh, Cynthia, I mean, I guess you could start if you want to, because you, you said that like you had kind of like purposed it in your heart, even in those dark moments when you were trapped, that if you ever got free, you would spend your life helping other people get free. Can you yeah. unpack a little bit of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the cool things about um, just being created in God's image and we all have unique skills, unique experiences. And I think um, for me, certainly, I, I think when I start to experience some progress and some breakthrough in this area, my immediate response was like, how do I help other people get the same thing? Um, I, I wouldn't say it was like an obligatory responsibility, but it was more just like a conviction and, and a compassion. And so I think, um, and the other thing I, I guess I should mention, and I imagine you guys would relate, but like there just weren't places to have these conversations, you know? And when I did start having conversations, it was like, oh my gosh, like everyone else is struggling. We all have the same issues or the same questions and the same frustration with the lack of resources and answers. So for me, I was probably about 23 years old, 24 years old, and I had two main prayers in my heart. One was, um, God, I pray you help me get free so that I can help other guys get free. And the other was, whoever my future wife is, keep her away from me for a little <laughs> bit until I get this thing sorted out. Um, mm -hmm. I had a mentor who taught me marriage is a magnifier. Um, he taught it to me very strongly. It was in a moment where I was like, man, I can't wait till I'm married so I can start having sex and not worry about porn. And he was like, no, 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 that's not how that works. Mm -hmm. um, so I had two, I had those two prayers kind of always in my heart. But then, you know, when I did start to experience more lasting freedom, like February 2016 was my last relapse. And um, I wasn't like, oh, perfect. Like, let's launch Deep Clean. Like, the business plan's ready to go. Um, I was just enjoying that life, you know? And my wife and I met pretty shortly after that, so I was pretty focused on a relationship. And then I hit a really difficult season. She and I got engaged. We had, honestly, pretty much the perfect dating experience. Got engaged in about two weeks into engagement she written and doctors didn't know what was going on. I, I talked about it in my book, which I think most, most of you guys have made your way through, um, but we played a, what I call medical bingo, you know, just trying to figure out what is wrong and nobody really knows. And um, I I had a really difficult moment and um, I don't share about, I don't share about this very often, but uh, it feels appropriate for what we're talking about here. But I, I, um, we, we, she had started seeing a specialist and basically the, the first person who could actually help her in some way was a naturopath. And at the time I was working for my church and I, I wasn't really enjoying the work. And I had this thing in my heart of like, I know I could be helping people more, but I, I was playing it safe. And I also did kind of feel like God had called me to that position at the time, but I was, I was inevitably like just very frustrated, um, making very little income. And Shalom started seeing this naturopath that was very expensive. There are all these supplements that came with it and I couldn't afford the medical bill. And I was totally gutted, just gutted as a man, gutted as, um, you know, I think a person who knew I had lots to offer the world and just felt like I never thought I'd be in a position like this, you know, like the bills weren't even crazy, but it was just so tight for me. And that's when I kind of made a decision of like, um, God, are there like any other ways that I could be making some money here? And that's when uh, deep cleaning that stuff started to surface because it was like, well, what am I passionate about? Who are the kind of people I could serve? What's an area that I'm like, you know, I have some breakthrough in. And that's actually how this stuff all really came about. And um, and it came, yeah, so it came out of like real pain. And then it was cool because, of course, pain is what sort of agitated and catalyzed the moment. But then once I started stepping into it, it was like, oh, yeah. And I forgot, like I had I had like a little framework in my phone and uh, from like a couple of years back. And like I had a bunch of different things that were all there. It's just I needed that kind of season to bring it all together. So that's actually how I how I kind of got started and doing this a little bit more professionally. Thanks, Cynthia. That was that was cool. I didn't yeah. I didn't know much of that. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing that God answered your prayer to keep that woman away from you until you were husband material, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly it. And it's funny, my wife now, like, um, I mean, again, another story for another day. She's quite healthy, quite a bit healthier. Um, still some things we're working out, but she's doing much better. And uh, she has her friends because obviously like in our social circles, everybody knows what I do. Right. I'm sure you guys go through this as well. Yep. And um, but I, I wouldn't say the guys are always reaching out to me. I've had some of that in my friend circles, but the wives will definitely reach out to Shaloma. And um, and so when she gets those 
calls and she has those conversations she almost always will come find me after and she just gives me a big hug and she's like thank you you know thank Mm. you so much because like um she just seen the devastation it can have on a marriage and i'm super grateful for my mentor who kind of smacked me across the face uh metaphorically speaking and was like dude no you need to get this thing sorted now before you get married so um Mm. yeah very grateful for that part it's kind of similar to my story in some ways Yeah. yeah because i had my own wake up call in pre-engagement counseling. Ooh. I highly recommend pre-engagement counseling because as soon as you get engaged to be married, you're planning an event with hundreds of people and there's not much space for doubt or <laughs> reconsideration at that point. If you go through premarital counseling and you realize, ooh, there are some big problems here. At that point, you've already started that ball rolling. Um, so pre-engagement counseling, that that is when I needed it. Um, and I was with Rebecca, who was this woman who uh, was four and a half years older than me and quite wonderful and mature. And, and I really, really liked her. And our pre-engagement counselors gave us two questions to answer. Number one, what do you appreciate about the other person? And number two, what do you see in yourself that needs work? What do you see in yourself that needs chiseling? Wow. That's the word they used. And I remember sitting on Rebecca's couch, across from her, staring at the carpet. I couldn't speak. I knew what I had to say, but I didn't want to say it. And eventually, my... (laughs) tight knots in my stomach untied to the point where I looked up into her eyes and I said, Rebecca, I'm not as free from porn as you might think. Hmm. And there are certain sexual fantasies that I have that I haven't told you about. And in that moment, she met with compassion and tenderness and so much empathy. That motivated me more than anything else ever had. Hmm. to not just get a certain amount of sobriety under my belt and uh, have a greater period of time of freedom from porn, but actually to get to a point where I can be confident that porn doesn't have a place in my life. Or even if it's been a year since I've used it, it doesn't feel like an exhausting battle. One of my favorite quotes is from Anthony DeMello who says, as long as you're fighting against something, it has power over you. So even if you have months or years of time without porn, as long as you're fighting a battle against it, it has power over you. Hmm. And, and so that's what started my deeper journey to, to learn as much as I could and to outgrow porn altogether like a pacifier. I often use this image of a, of a pacifier. Um, when you're a kid, eventually as you grow, you drop the pacifier because it doesn't have a place. It's irrelevant. Um, and that is what happens when we become sexually, emotionally, spiritually mature men of God when we're able to bless our sexuality instead of cursing it, even the parts we don't like, even the parts that have historically um, dominated us or disgusted us. And so um, I'm really happy to say that I'm at peace with my sexuality, not because I got married, but because the pacifier has lost its power. Yeah, that's amazing. It is amazing. Drew, I'd, I'd be interested to hear you talked about uh, the quote, uh, fighting against something. And if you're fighting against something, then it still has power over you because mm-hmm. it's still a, a, a battlefront that you find yourself in. Yeah. And I was wondering, do you, are you then making distinctions about battling against something versus battling towards something instead of looking back and saying, no, like, keep that, keep that back. You see a vision in front of you that's worth moving towards, or is it some other sort of art articulation? In the porn recovery, sexual integrity world, um, sometimes uh, 
the language of conquering or fighting pornography can end up feeling like fighting against my sexuality mm. um, rather than fighting for my sexuality. And the way that I, I like to describe it is instead of battling all these parts of myself, I'm befriending these different parts of myself. Okay. Befriending the little boy within me who is carrying his childhood experiences into adulthood. As a pacifier. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of instead of avoiding or attacking or ignoring that little boy, I am befriending him. When I can do that, um, then meeting the, the underlying needs in a healthy way uh, eliminates the need for a battle altogether. Um, and isn't that isn't that what the what the gospel gives us? It's not it's not a a gospel that that results in fear. It's a gospel that results in love. And ultimately fighting is a is a fear reaction. It's a trauma reaction. Fight, flight and freeze. Um, and the Bible tells us that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love and self-discipline. So how much how much better is that to live in love rather than fear? Um, as long as as long as we're fighting against our sexuality, as long as I'm I'm afraid of it, uh, then that's actually going to intensify my arousal. And you can think about this. I mean, uh, if you resist a thought or a feeling or an urge, what happens to it? It grows. It it intensifies. And that's how some guys can get erections for hours on end. It's like this this little slight uh, feeling that that slowly builds through the day comes overwhelmed. That happens when when we resist these urges rather than learning about them, observing them, uh, befriending them, and seeing what they're trying to tell us. Um, if if we if we are able to identify what we're feeling sexually notice it, uh, bring curiosity and kindness to it. Sexual urges don't last longer than half an hour. They're like waves in the ocean. They pass. Right. But if we become fixated on them, then they can last for a long time until we just can't take it anymore. So I have fought that frustrating, exhausting battle for too long. And my heart goes <laughs> out to all the guys who are still stuck in it. Yeah. And it's worth saying that it's uh, by this point, it's not even just a guy issue. You know, it's kind of just a human human issue. Uh, the last time I looked at stats, more men view porn than women. But the amount of women who were viewing porn like it was uh, it was growing faster than men. Yeah. So like while it's lower, it's growing faster than what it's growing amongst men. And at some point it'll just catch up. So. Yeah. And I, I don't ever want to disenfranchise women um, and make them because like that's that's a dangerous lie for a lot of women. This is a guy issue. Like when they break up, the guys go talk about sexual integrity and the girls go talk about like body image stuff. Um, yeah. And I've had too many female friends who felt so ostracized in that space. It's just like, well, I struggle too. But you say it's a guy issue. So I'm just alone in this. I'm just alone in this. Yeah, it's true. Shane, I want to I want to hear how you got into this space, but um, I have to comment really quick because Drew brought up premarital counseling, and um, uh, in case anybody's really scared about doing something like that, I promise you won't have a worse experience than what what I had on one particular session. So my wife and I filled out these assessments. So it's like you have a page of like maybe ten statements, all pertaining to a particular category: finances, sexuality, in laws whatever and you just basically circle how much you disagree or agree with the statement on a scale of one to five and one of the statements i have no idea why the statement was even on there but one of the statements was sometimes i wish i had uh we never got engaged because drew like you were saying i guess it is common that like couples get engaged they start to run into friction and then they start to question and to doubt and as i mentioned my wife was bedridden we had been through a lot we buried five relatives while we were engaged like very <laughs> eventful very tumultuous 
And so I had circled, um, not like the strongly agreed, but I think the agreed. And then I crossed it out and I changed it to a three, which was just like a neutral answer. <laughs> that was how I like, I just answering it honestly, I thought about it and I was like, yeah, I've had these thoughts, not a big deal, but they're definitely there. So um, then you hand them the assessments. It's not like you see each other's answers or anything, but uh, our officiants obviously look through our answers and then they decide which statements maybe we need to talk more about. And I was really, actually I had forgotten about it now that I think about it, but then, you know, I never knew if that was going to come up. And anyway, there was one particular day we actually went through the statements. They didn't mention that one. So it didn't come up, the session's over. And like I said, because it had been eventful, like my fiance and I at the time, we were we were butting heads a little bit. You know, we were having some really intense conversations around her health and all that. And um, anyways, they had, they had talked us down from whatever mountain or whatever thing it was that we were dealing with. And they're like, oh yeah, here are your assessments. And he gave my assessment to her. Mm. And so, she, and like, honestly, like laser vision, like she just saw it right there, like went straight to it. And she's like, wait, you, you circled what you, you've had those. And it was like, oh no. And you could just see he was like, uh, Gordon was his name. He won't mind me mentioning his name. Gordon was like, oh no, 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 don't worry about that. And he's like trying to grab the paper and like, anyways, we we had this like next big conversation and you know, it, it's funny because it actually does tie into what you were saying, Drew. I think the concept uh, works in your relationships and everything else. You have to be honest about the things you feel and the thoughts you experience. And of course, in a relationship context, there's a way to communicate those things. But um, but I just thought the way you were mentioning it, I was like, man, I have to bring this up because I think it's important people hear about um, some of those honest conversations you have to have with yourself and, and with other people. It's all part of healing and recovery. And um, my wife and I are a lot better now for those conversations. Um, we kind of got forced into some of those honest conversations, obviously, but um, it goes a really long way. So anyways, I just want to mention that in case somebody is out there thinking about premarital counseling. It is worthwhile for sure. But yeah, but Shane, I, I want to I hear how you got into all this, man. I, I do want to reiterate that I, I, I really, I, I think Drew is really wise in saying that. That's a position that my wife and I have come to of a pre-engagement counseling. Um, as Drew noted, once you start premarital counseling after you've gotten engaged, the date is already set. Like typically you've booked a venue, you've put down a lot of money and yeah. it doesn't give you a lot of space to, it, it really just robs your agency in a lot of ways. You're not allowed to journey through whatever you're journey through properly. And even, I mean, Kaylee had some like authority abuse from men when she was younger and had some stories of like even man hating in her head. And for me, like, I'd been clean from porn for a while, but I I had physiological issues maybe like the first six months of our marriage with like erectile dysfunction and like just like head placement uh, in the scene, like when we're trying to be intimate and have union mm -hmm. together. It's like a lot of stuff that we weren't prepared for. It came up in premarital once we were engaged, but again, it didn't give us a lot of space to journey through that properly. Uh, and really know each other. So I really love what you guys are talking about and uh, would definitely encourage it for anybody who's listening to this and isn't married. Because uh, there is that myth that uh, porn is just a placeholder for marriage and it's just not true. Um, yeah. I met Jesus when I was 19 and he saved me from a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, I was a drug addict, I was dying and uh, yeah, Jesus saved me. You were dying? I was, yeah. I was addicted to heroin. I weighed 100 pounds. I was off color. Yeah, I was dying. Whoa. Yeah. And uh, and I met Jesus and I basically sat in a chair in Tennessee with my family for Christmas. I went down there from Pennsylvania. I knew they knew God and they could help introduce him to me. That was my thinking. So I basically sat in a chair and detox and withdrawed. Uh, for a month and tried to figure out what the heck unconditional love was and grace was and mercy was and couldn't sleep, couldn't eat. My parents and my sisters would stay up. They'd take turns every night just staying up and they'd read scripture. They'd roll around on the ground and cry with me or whatever I needed. And then I'd get back in that chair. So uh, he saved me from a lot of stuff, a lot. Um, the one thing that didn't go away that I wasn't able to get freedom from was pornography. There were two things, one was porn. And, uh, and to see it as a kind of an insidious infection in my life and in the life of the church, uh, realizing that, 
yeah, there's a disconnect between Jesus's gospel, uh, his friendship and lordship towards us, and knowing that expression of salvation when it comes to, yeah, our sexual identity. And so I've spent a lot of years exploring that uh, with other men and curriculum, and I've been working with Proven for five and a half years now. Um, so it's been a heck of a journey, and it's been really good because there are a lot of other things that I like to explore. Um, but Jesus keeps saying, no, like this is, this is our focus right now. Like this is where I have mm -hmm. you. And, and a lot of, so like the proven curriculum is 12 weeks and it's, it is, it's involved, uh, because we spend years developing this. And then we, we do, we get a lot of pastors who come to us. They say, Hey, this is awesome. Can it be shorter? You know? And it's like, well, no, it really can't be. And and a lot of people do, they, they jump into the proven curriculum because they know they're about to get married and they just want to like nip it in the bud. They just want to get rid of their, their problem, you know? And so even a recalibration in my own heart, my own understanding of, under, of seeing sexual integrity as a lifelong journey of mm -hmm. relationship, both with myself and with other people, uh, is a lot of the motivation. But I, I, I do, I want to ask you guys, because we've, we've, even on our language, we've been bridging together in this conversation, uh, like, sexual struggles or sexual integrity or unwanted sexual behavior with the expression of pornography. And so I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on whether or not you think porn is the causal factor for what we see today, or if you see porn as a symptom. I'm much more inclined to see it as a symptom, which also creates more symptoms. Um, in other words, two little boys can stumble across a porn video. Um, for one of them, doesn't think twice, goes on with his day. For another one, he's hooked. It's not an accident. Life experiences set us up to be sexually hooked or sexually attracted to different things um, or to be more resilient or to be more um, able to handle what we feel, what we see. But the reality is that, that porn is not just a pacifier, kind of a, a symptom of, of childhood experiences and pain that we we use it to to try to cope with it's also a predator i i have begun calling the porn industry a predator because it not only preys upon its performers from a young age to exploit them as much as possible it also preys upon consumers and and upon little boys and girls who who might see a video or an image and then they get exploited. So I used to ask my clients this question, how much of your attachment to porn do you believe is your fault? Not at all my fault, mostly not my fault, mostly my fault or all my fault. And guess what the majority said? All my fault. All my fault. Yeah. All my fault, even though this $100 billion industry has exploited them from before the age when they can make an informed decision. Um, so I'm not saying that uh, that that we we need to make excuses for ourselves, but certainly we can we can acknowledge the way that our systems have set us up to become attached to this this pacifier, which which is really a, a fake nipple with no milk. Right. And, and if I, if I put, if I put a pacifier or something else uh, in my living room and my kids see it, what are they going to do? They're going to go play with it. They're going to pick it up. They're going to touch it. They're going to, they're going to engage with it. Um, even if it hurts them and if it does hurt them, they're probably going to believe that it's their fault. Even though an adult altered the environment to shape the choices they had available. Hmm. 
So I guess that's my long way of saying I see porn as a symptom, maybe a pacifier, but I also see it as a predator. Yeah, I would agree. I I think um, like Shane, you mentioned uh, being addicted to heroin. I imagine you weren't addicted to heroin overnight. It's like, I'm going to do drugs. Let's try some heroin, right? It was gradual. And one thing kind of led to another before you found yourself in that place. And I think porn is very much the gateway drug in this arena. Um, somebody's dysfunction and brokenness leads them down that path. But it's porn that often exacerbates, amplifies, and furthers the dysfunction into something much worse. You know, that eventually has a downstream effect on relationships and social well-being and spirituality and everything else. So, yeah, it's uh, it is a symptom through and through. Like, it's not that's this is the reason why we know like behavior modification is not the answer here because it is a symptom and you have to get underneath the surface and try to get to the root of the issue. But similarly, it's not to say that, um, I mean, Drew, your story is actually quite salient. It's like, just because you're not watching porn and you've done some inner work, there's still remnants. There could be other elements because porn is often the gateway to other other parts of our sexual dysfunction. So, yeah. yeah. And for me personally, I never used or viewed traditional porn. I mean, there's no such thing as normal porn, but uh, I, I never went to a porn website my preferred type of porn was social media. Facebook, MySpace, looking up my classmates and masturbating to them. Hmm. Yeah, so I was sense. using it pornographically, even though it wasn't designed as porn. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, the, the other thing I was going to say too is like... Um, the, the one thing that's been really exposed about the porn industry and certainly some of the larger porn websites is the amount of aggression and violence and that kind of thing. And I think th that's a great example of like subsidiary effects that come from engaging in porn. Like porn is the symptom, but then it can lead to much, much behavior. Obviously, um, Drew, I'm sure you and I have clients who have been you know paying for sex and doing all kinds of things to... Um, you know, to further get that hit because porn no longer provides it. But I think I think porn is very much the the central hub for a lot of this. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, it's because people are getting baited, you know, a very young age. Um, I mean, the industry, they know what they're doing um, and they're very, very clever in the way they're they're sort of um, teasing people into it. And uh, and then eventually it becoming something much worse down the road. So, yeah. What do you think, Shane? Yeah, I'm with you guys on all of that. I. Uh... Maybe Gary Wilson's uh, Your Brain on Porn uh, has been helpful uh, for me to see that porn does have kind of causal power in a sense. Like, so if we're talking cause and effect or cause and symptom, um, using effect and symptom synonymously, like porn has, has repercussions. Uh, it impacts sleeping. It impacts uh, anxiety and depression. It has... Yeah, ramifications. Um, but I also, I also think, like you guys, that we don't just watch porn in a vacuum. Like it doesn't happen without a reason. Oh. Uh, I've never actually shared this before, but oh, at least not on here. Um, but when I, when I, it was year, years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, when I first started experiencing healing from from porn. Um, I was seeing a, a therapist and he straight up told me, he said, okay, Shane, I want you over just like the next two weeks to masturbate whenever you want to, but don't watch porn. And he's like, create a, a rhythm, create a liturgy. I don't care. Just go ahead and do that. And so like I did, you know, I was regularly masturbating, but that wasn't new. I just wasn't watching porn. But then I found out I was like slowly actually masturbating less and less and less. I was like, why? And then my therapist connected the dots and helped me to see that like I don't merely watch pornography because I'm aroused or horny right and then all of a sudden I wasn't struggling with like lust nearly as much because I wasn't actually using porn for lust I was using it as a pacifier for my pain for my loneliness well, uh, like porn would tuck me in at night and it would greet me in the morning and it would accept me when I wasn't bathed, it doesn't care how presentable I was. And it's just really just this artificial pseudo gospel 
of acceptance uh, and and novelty, you know, and wonder. And I wasn't able, I didn't know that. I didn't know that in my bones. Now I do. And that practice really actually helped me and it started me. But I first needed to see that that porn was a symptom to some things that I was scared of and I didn't know how to address. Uh, so that's been, that's been a part of my development. And uh, yeah, so I'm with you guys on all of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Pseudo gospel. That was yeah. a cool term. Yeah. I love that story, it. man. Yeah. Um, to me, it reveals that porn functions as a savior in a way. It is counterfeit, counterfeit savior. Exactly. Yeah, because it. I think what, what people like, there's some spaces where I'll speak about this and people are surprised that porn addiction is even a thing let alone that it's as devastating as it is. And I think it's because people don't realize that when you start to develop this dependency, like it, porn just plays into parts of you that a drug addiction doesn't necessarily play into, right? Like, again, not to say that one's, I don't know, like I'm not trying to compare them. I'm just trying to say porn addiction really hits on some of the most fundamental parts of somebody to have intimacy and belonging and a sense of unconditional acceptance and everything else. Um, which is why that term really struck me of pseudo gospel. Cause you're like, yeah, that everything that we're looking for in the gospel, or at least a lot of it, um, you can find in a very artificial way in pornography. That's quite fascinating. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I, I guess kind of jumping off of that, I would love to hear, uh, as, as you guys have been kind of exploring your own healing, but then also now helping other people find healing, um, I know our models are constantly being revised, but like what's a maybe like a, a cornerstone like approach or I don't know, a lesson, but like a cornerstone aspect of y'all's approach that you have found to be remarkably important. Uh, yeah. And just vital in the midst of like, OK, like uh, things are changing. This probably won't change. Sure, I'll get better at communicating it, but this thing won't change. Uh, I, it's pivotal. In a lot of ways, what what is something uh, like that in in y'all's own models and approaches that have just been vital in finding healing in your own life, but also healing in other people's lives? For me, being able to interpret sexual fantasies has had such a remarkable power to strip porn of its seductive power. Like it it blows me away it <laughs> that might be a, a weird way to say it but like it is really really amazing to discover why certain types of porn appeal to certain types of people and patrick carnes the grandfather of sex addiction was saying this way back in the 80s more recently jay stringer has been writing about it in the last few years and and their insights are ultimately pointing to to the particularity of porn. There's no such thing as porn in general or vague, vague uh, types of, of interactions. Each sexual scenario is telling a story. It is a story of salvation in some way that appeals to us for specific reasons. And, and so being able to interpret my own sexual fantasies has, has been so de-shaming it has allowed me to be honest about them and receive love and to experience that whatever I hate about myself doesn't disqualify me from being held and being loved and being accepted and being nurtured. Amen. So, so when we can bravely, courageously face our fantasies we can see the stories that they are telling and write a new story instead yeah that's good man and um for people who aren't familiar with drew he's fantastic very practical and i've learned a lot from you man just hearing the way you talk about that subject uh, matter and walking people through that process very very useful so um yeah yeah you got that thing nailed down it's really really good thanks mm. thea yeah. How about for you, man? Yeah, I think for me, um, like we kind of we've consolidated our process down to three pillars of 
cultivating self-awareness, healing of the heart, and uh, the third pillar, which for me, I think is the the evergreen, uh, which is identity. And each of these pillars for us has a, a little proverb with it. So the proverb for identity is, I would rather be 100% my true self and rejected than 80% my true self and accepted. And I think what happens, uh, at least what's happened for me as I've started to experience legitimate freedom, uh, you know, not just sobriety, but actual freedom in this area is I've, I've just really learned to love myself, you know, and be like, man, I, there's some good stuff here. Like I don't have it all figured out, but God, like you've given me so much. And that kind of, um, humble confidence, I think, I think that comes with the freedom journey that for me is always a staple. And it is a little bit of a, it's a two way street in some ways, as you learn to love yourself more, I think you walk in more freedom and as you walk in more freedom, you love yourself more. And I think what we've witnessed in, in our community certainly is that this is, it's just one of those pillars we're not going to let go of anytime soon because the kind of transformation that we see in the guys who really apply it is incredible. Um, so I think that's been really huge. And then one thing that's still active in my life today, because I would say some of the things I was working through seven, eight years ago when I was struggling, um, maybe not so much today, but one practical thing that we help people do is uh, we call it mirror therapy. And it's just standing in front of a mirror, looking yourself square in the eyes and speaking the truth over yourself. Um, that might be a, a staggered process for some people. Just standing in front of a mirror is a step. Um, looking yourself in the eyes is, would be another step. Um, and then being able to speak the truth. But that's something I still do today, you know, because I, I still experience distress and anxiety and um, and have moments where it's like my world feels like it's crumbling a little bit and I need to stabilize and remind myself of, of who God is and who God's made me to be. And mirror therapy goes a really long way. So that that to me is why I think I'm just so convinced that it'll be evergreen, because even for me, six and a half years clean and it's still serving a purpose in my life. Hmm. So Thea, I love that part about your program and kind of building that bulletproof identity as you call it in your book. Yeah. Um, to, to ultimately come to a place where porn is not who I am anymore. Um, what are some of your their identity statements right now? Oh man, great question. Okay, so I, I have a couple go-tos and that's, that's where I've been kind of camping out these days. So uh, for me, one of my big, one of the big parts of my healing journey was getting over performance thinking. Performance thinking kind of being the idea that like God loves me as well as I do something or I am loved as well as I do something. So it's, it's been really powerful for me lately just to stand in front of the mirror, look at myself in the eyes and say, you are loved in this moment just as much as you were any other. Like God, like you couldn't do anything to make God love you more right now in this moment, you know? Um, anything good or anything bad. So that's been a huge one. Um, the other is uh, one of my prayers when when my wife was quite ill and I, I realized that I can't control the situation. Very difficult for me. I love having control and that's something I've had to work through over the years. And it's been a huge part of my fantasies as well. You know, like, it, like the stuff I've worked through and drew some of the your material that I've applied in my own life has been understanding, oh my gosh, my fantasies are providing me a sense of power and control and all that kind of stuff. And so when I realized I couldn't, control my wife's health and that was beyond my control um i start to ask myself what can what could i control you know what's something that is within my arena of responsibility and um and from that came this prayer that i i pray regularly and something i, I speak to myself in front of the mirror which is um god i pray that you just make me a better man today make me make me more of the man you made me to be and so i i turn that into a declaration of you are becoming the man that god's made you to be day by day today Sathya, you're becoming that man and um mm -hmm. yeah so those those are my two go-to's right now let's go yeah. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's fun i enjoy it i was yeah. shocked from uh learning this from jay stringer's material about how how central control is you know when it comes to pornography um i think he he reduces it to five things and two of them are resentment Resentment? No, it's resignation and futility. When oh, yes. life pushes us yes. into a position where we, we feel futile, it's like no matter what we do, nothing will ever come from it. Like it takes away our agency, our ability to have will and make change. And then also resignation, when we've just given up, right? When we've just given up. Uh, and then porn, it comes in again as that, that pseudo gospel, that pseudo savior. 
All right. And says, no, no, no. Like here you have agency. You can pick whoever you want and I can, I can be whoever you want and I'll be however you want. And Mm -hmm. I can be in whatever position you want in whatever setting and scene you want. And I can dress however you want. All of a sudden there's so much, um, perceived control, uh, from a situation like that. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up, uh, Sathya, because it's been, it's been it's been important. It's it's still important in my own healing and my own development. Mm, yeah, it it really highlights to me the value of the recovery journey or process or whatever. Like recovery is not really a destination per se, but I think for me, like one of the things I desire for my guys and certainly for the listeners of this podcast and and everyone else that that we get to influence. My desire is that they develop skills so that when they do encounter a relapse or a trigger tornado or whatever it might be, there's there's a certain degree of like, I've been here before. I hate this moment. It doesn't make the uncomfortable feelings more comfortable, but it does give this underlying sense of like, I will make it through. Like, Drew, I'm going to guess that the response time and the reparative conversations and all that probably happened more quickly than they would have three years ago, five years ago, eight years ago, because you you built that skill set, right? The, the propensity for those kinds of more challenging conversations and confronting the self-hatred and everything else is greater because of the work you've done. So I hope people are hearing that as well. Um, this isn't like some hopeless, endless thing that you're just on the rest of your life in this kind of um, wallowing sort of way. It's actually really rewarding and really edifying because you you literally mature before god's eyes and before the eyes of your loved ones and um then challenge the way i mean i think we could all probably agree the further along you go in life the more complicated and complex the challenges become um but now you have a skill set and you have a maturity to to be able to manage it a lot more quickly and that to me, I'm like, look, if I can't get my guys all the way across the finish line, quote unquote, in my program, then at the very least, I, I will make sure that they get these skills and that they develop some of that maturity that's required for the journey, because that's going to last a lot longer anyway. Amen. Yeah. We are all at different stages on that journey. It's unrealistic to think everyone's going to have the same result by doing the same thing. But when you can take Sathya's program, take my program, take Proven Men, um, it's going to get you to the next step, whatever that is. Yeah, with you on both of that, uh, both of you guys on that, I the whole like uh, kind of old old idiom of um, you know teaching a man to fish versus just giving him a fish. Um, I right. think it applies pretty cleanly in a situation like this. Uh, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about. You know, people coming to Proven because they just want to get fixed, you know, and they'll use that language. I just want to get better. You know, and it's like, yeah, uh, we need a category switch here. And even pastors saying this is great. It just needs to be shorter. You know, and it's like, yeah, (laughs) Well, underneath that, sometimes it's because I hate myself. Yeah, that's fair. That is fair. I think one of the things for at least for my own personal journey, um, one of the things that has surprised me and I don't see it like maybe ever going away um, as necessary is how much courage it takes. I I don't think I anticipated that. Uh, It takes a lot of like bravery, at, at least for me to be like, okay, like I'm avoiding something. I'm, you know, like what? I remember I was with a friend once. I was like, hey, just a heads up, man, since we'll be with each other for a lot of the day. I have a lot of like just just sitting anxiety uh, behind my sternum. And if that like accidentally comes out at you or you catch that in my tone, preemptively sorry, man. Just wanted to give you a heads up. And then he just kind of leaned back and he's like, yeah. Dude, thanks so much for sharing that with me. Uh, Makes me feel, yeah, yeah. Thank you for seeing me in your day. Are there any uh, questions inside of you that you're avoiding? I was just like, ah, shoot, 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 you know, <laughs> just mic drop because I, uh, I discovered that there were, you know, the anxiety was uh, exacerbated by these questions or a question that I was avoiding. Hmm. And it takes a lot of bravery and courage for me to take a step back and say, OK, what am I avoiding? What am I scared of that I want to medicate with uh, with an orgasm? What what 
or a fantasy or whatever it might be. What about my story am I avoiding by jumping into this story? What don't I like about the character that I am in this story that makes me want to be a character in a different story, right? And and porn and fantasy, uh, yeah, offer really strong alternatives for when I just am scared or insecure or just don't know how to practice bravery. So I think bravery and courage have been really uh, significant staples in my own my own journey towards Jesus and gaining um, a relationship with myself, the people around me, and God's spirit that dwells within me. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. That's cool, man. I, I would, um, I don't think this is too much of a non sequitur because we've, we've, We've all mentioned it to some degree, but the church, when it comes to addressing this stuff, looking at this stuff, I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on maybe like even just some things you've been encouraged by with some of the directions. Uh, but I, I, if I were a listener right now, I'd be like, this is really good. Um, and it's good because it's in the weeds in the sense that like we're pulling up weeds. Um, but also taking a step back and making sure we're understanding kind of the landscape that we're trying to, um, yeah, de-weed, so to speak. Um, yeah. It's just impossible to, I mean, it's like 96% of men in the church have viewed porn. You know, like when you look at the Me Too movement uh, and then the Church Too movement and it's continuing. It's just like even a few days ago. A bunch of like Southern Baptist churches released this thing of like, yeah, we messed up again. You know, like this is how pastors have been hiding and mishandling. Uh, even I was again listening to a podcast the other day and they were asking the question, why do we always talk about Joseph resisting Potiphar's wife? Right. And we were so celebrate him, but we don't ever preach the rape passages in the Old Testament. Like the most we get out of it is women don't travel alone right because you're fragile and vulnerable and we don't ever really engage that stuff and i was like oh shoot like i i haven't i haven't ever heard a sermon about a rape passage in the old testament and yeah, there are several well, often we will talk about david having a problem with lust rather than david sexually assaulted and abused this woman um like he raped her. He did. Yeah. Yeah. And and we think and killed her husband. Yeah. 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 So um it's I I've been really convicted that maybe maybe instead of instead of over identifying with with David having some kind of intersexual struggle, we need to soberly like reckon with his rape. Yeah. And and the the horror of that um not you know giving him not giving him a pass as uh you know just another garden variety sinner yeah 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 totally and i i think the lack of those messages again symptomatic of something but i'd like to hear y'all's thoughts on on the church and why we have struggled to really address this issue remember even when like sean mcdowell started talking about it in the 90s like huge reaction to him you know and even when i tell people like what i do it's like you know it's always mixed reactions some people are just like wow you just said the p word you know and it's like well like most of your congregants are watching porn and we just refer to it as the p word you know so I, yeah. i'd love to hear y'all's y'all's yeah just like just the why of it um it has seemed like to me that a lot of people approach it as like this is this is uh, like sex is so sacred. We dare not talk about it, you know, and, and porn is so defiled that we dare not talk about it. And for me, it's like, well, no, like it's so sacred. We, we ought to talk about it. You know, it, this is so defiled that we need to address it. Um, so like it ends up being like an open ended logic and it, it doesn't ever like kind of satisfy me in that way. So I, I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts. So Thea, do you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I love the local church like i cannot imagine my life without it like i said i i grew up a, a pastor's kid so church was everything for us growing up um it certainly gave me a spiritual foundation but it gave me a sense of belonging and it was a place where i got to 
like even just watching my dad preach like my dad was my hero growing up you know because um because i just saw him do the thing that god made him to do week in week out so effectively like um I hold just incredible fondness of the local church and my wife and I are, you know, we're worship leaders. Uh, and so we were very active in our local church. So I, I just want to contextualize a little bit about what I'm about to say, because um, I, I think um, there's tons of room for improvement. I think that's probably an understatement. But the way I sort of liken it is, you know, when you're a pastor, like I, I, I was in a pastoral role of some capacity for roughly 10 years, starting when I was 18. And for about three years full time in my mid to late 20s. And then it was part time before that. And you you can only take the people you're leading as far as you can go personally. And so I think, you know, for a lot of the shepherds out there, there's this part of the pastor called sexual integrity that most of them cannot take their flock to because they don't have access. And so I feel really strongly that it is uh, yes, it's on the onus of congregants and, and everyone else, like collectively capital C church. But I feel really strongly about pastors um, stepping up to the plate. And I, I say that as somebody who was a pastor, who saw my dad as a pastor and, um, you know, just has has extensive un understanding and experience in local church ministry. It's pastors who I think are going to open the door for their congregants to get breakthroughs. And so that's where I'm particularly passionate is just seeing pastors step up and um, be be the example, you know, of walking in sexual integrity in a really healthy biblical way, because I think when they start to do that, um, they're going to create a lot more avenues for their congregants to do the same. It's also a huge risk for them to do that. Yeah. To be open as a leader creates all kinds of questions, um, especially depending on the nature of of the sexual brokenness that that they personally are in the middle of. Um, so, yeah, I I do agree. To, and I, yeah. oh, sorry, I was just gonna, and I was just going to add, and I think it's it's probably. Um, it's probably on the people who are resourcing as well, like ourselves. Like it's great, what, especially I would say what Proven Men is doing because you obviously have a local church target. Because um, you're right, it's not just like, come on pastors, get it together. Um, of course, they, they need the tools, they need the resources and the opportunities to get the healing that they deserve. Hmm. Yeah, I do, I do find myself wishing that there was more honest confession on the part of leadership staff, not in like some sort of um, disqualifying way, but like if there's going to be a sermon on sexual integrity or whatever, just like leading with your own story, I think would help humanize uh, so much of the gospel that saves me day in and day out is that God knows what it feels like to be me. You know, like he came into our story so that he could invite us into his story. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think that orientation matters. It starts with the incarnation and Jesus coming into our story so that he could invite us to be characters in his story, in his kingdom. Um, so embodying, like properly incarnating the message uh, would do a lot of good for me. I've seen peers really react to, to sermons or youth group stuff with sexual integrity because it's like, like they're telling us what to do, but I don't know who this guy is. I don't, I don't know if he's faithful to his wife. I don't know if he's addicted to porn and just like preaching a message that he knows he's supposed to. Um, so I, I think that like aspect of, I think uh, Drew used the word vulnerability, um, leading with vulnerability in that area, I think would do a lot of good for a lot of us. Hmm. And it will have a cost. Yeah. A steep cost, possibly. Might even cost somebody their job. Yeah. So I I have I have a lot of empathy as well for those who who are reluctant. They don't have their safe place. So how can they create one? Yeah. In some ways that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create those places. Yeah, I've, um, I've asked a lot of pastors to join me on the Naked Gospel over the years. And 
only one ever has just to come on and share their experience with porn. And it was an awesome conversation. I loved it, but I see that cost. And, uh, yeah, I like that you're, you're balancing out critique with compassion, Drew. I think that's, that's good. I think that's, I think that's the Jesus way. Yeah. Okay. We are crushing time guys. Absolutely crushing it. So, um, how about this for a wind down? Um, when it particularly when it particularly pertains to what you guys are doing now, what is something that Jesus is discipling you in or challenging you in, uh, encouraging you in? But like, what aspect of your work and your relationships uh, is currently being discipled by Jesus? How is He currently discipling you? We talked about it earlier. Right now, I'm working through resignation, choosing not to settle for. Uh, giving up on areas of uh, personal finances or different ministry ideas I want to do, um, continuing to to show up and to be brave and to be present rather than to resign. Yeah. Taking redemptive risks. That's where I am growing right now. Amen. That's amazing. You're a good husband for doing it, man. You really are. Um, I think for me, it is um, something I've been talking about a lot on my podcast is just learning how to handle transitions. Like my wife and I have just invited ourselves into a lot of transition lately in our lives, uh, geographically, vocationally, um, relationally, all kinds of shifts and changes. And for me, is um, like safety is so important to me, psychological safety. And um, contributed a lot to my porn consumption as well when I was struggling. And so those things surface again amidst transition, like the coping mechanisms, the lack of safety and where I find it. Sometimes it's not always healthy. Um, it could be binging. It could be isolation. Um, it could be kind of being closed off. And so I feel like that's what I'm really fighting for right now, just as we go through a lot of changes, is finding safety. Um, there is an, an element of psychological safety within you know, like the breath work and just being back in my body and that kind of thing. But there's a huge element of finding that safety in God as well mm -hmm. and the comfort that he brings in just just experiencing his presence in those moments and and sort of that, I don't know, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a dyad. It's a, there's a duality there. It's, it is the safety within that he provides. I think maybe that's the better way to put it. So um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Amen. How about you, man? Um. Sorry, I got distracted for a second. Yes, I, I love all of that, guys. Thank you for sharing it. Um, you guys have shared, yeah, about the uh, personally what Jesus is, is currently teaching you. Yeah, I uh, pretty close to what, what what Drew is wrestling through. Um, my wife asked me uh, last week, she said, hey, uh, sometimes I see this victim thing come over you, and I hear it in your language. I hear it in your tone. I hear it in how you choose to address life. Um, and then she did. She said, in what ways do you feel like a victim? Just generally speaking. And there was no like criticism in it. She just asked the question. It was a gift to me. And uh, yeah. So that's something that I've been sitting with, has been medicine in my soul, uh, takes courage to address, but it's been really good because uh, it's it's bigger than I think it is. And it's, it's neutered my my perceived ability to actually change things, to actually have an impact upon life. And uh, mm -hmm. so it's important, really important. Well, there you have it. That was uh, the inaugural podcast between the three of us, between, between Drew, Shane, and Sathya. And like I said, you can expect an a interview like this every couple of months. Once every couple of months, something we're just figuring out, something we're going to get better at for sure. But I hope, I hope you can see we are, we are imperfect people here. And sometimes you listen to ministries, especially or uh, podcasts or businesses, people that have, you know, made some strides and they're, they're in a place where you want to be. And you kind of look at their lives and you think they have it all together. And, and what we're hoping to do with this podcast is just to, 
create some space, have some conversations, have some dialogue. Um, we don't see eye to eye on everything. And so I hope, I hope there'll be some back and forth as well and just hashing out some, some thoughts and opinions. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's more where that came from. I do encourage you to go check these guys out. Uh, like I mentioned, Drew, he's been on the podcast here before and I've been on his podcast a couple of times, but he has a, an organization called Husband Material Men. They have a very good podcast and uh, a community. Drew does some coaching and he's got a bunch of coaches on his team that help as well. And Shane is the host of Naked Gospel Truth or Naked Gospel Podcast. I think it's Naked Gospel Podcast. And that is a subsidiary of Proven Men Ministries. And they have tons of resources as well. Um, They're structured a little bit differently, but again, tons of booklets, handbooks, um, all kinds of resources, courses, programs to help you. And their podcast is phenomenal as well. Both of these guys are a little bit further ahead of me in the podcast game. So there's lots that you can glean from them and from their material. So I hope you go check them out. Their links are in the show notes. But in the meantime, guys, I want to thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy this podcast and you've been getting some value from it, I hope you'll leave us a rating or review that lets other people know that there's good material here that their lives can benefit from as well. Much love to you guys. Have an amazing day and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Hey everybody, it's Sathya again. Thanks for listening to Unleash the Man Within. I wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a free ebook that I wrote for you called The Ultimate Guide to Porn Recovery. It provides a basic framework for the recovery process and a few of my top tips completely free of charge. You can get it now at www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. That's www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. Now, if you've been impacted by the podcast and you want to show some support in less than 60 seconds, there are three ways you can do that. First, you can leave a rating or review on your podcast platform. This lets people like you know that the content here is valuable. Secondly, you can share this episode with someone in your life that might benefit from the content. If you're passionate about helping other people experience freedom and success in their lives, this is one of the easiest ways to do that. And lastly, you can subscribe. I personally only listen to the podcast that I subscribe to. If you're seeking daily encouragement, guidance, and insight in your recovery journey, I highly recommend subscribing to Unleash the Man Within. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting with you very, very soon. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast by Sathya Sam and his guests are for general information only and should not be considered medical, clinical, or any other form of professional advice. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk.